Hello everyone and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today I have the pleasure of hosting a unique panel focused on organizational and team design. And I'm welcoming Naomi Stanford, an organizational design consultant, expert and author. Milan Gunther, an enterprise design expert, author and lecturer as well, partner at the Enterprise Design Associates and an organizer of Intersection. And Matthew Skelton, a consultant in team-first organizational design and author of Team Topologies. Naomi, Milan, Matthew, welcome to Making Remote Work. Thank you. Thank you. To start off, so everyone gets to know you a bit better, not just the function and where you work. Can you introduce yourself and the kind of work that you are doing and what has shaped your thinking? And Naomi, if you want to start, that would be that would be amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, yes, hello everyone, and thanks um, for inviting me to be on this panel. I have spent a lifetime in organization design, and I'm really excited at this point by um, the possibilities offered by things like remote working, by the Black Lives Matters, by new thinking in organization design, the technology of it all, and the way we're starting right, to think you. about much more deeply about what is an organization, how are they designed, can we actually think about them in, in very different ways, or are we going to be forced to be? Um, as I said, my background is in organization design, and I uh, write and blog and talk about it extensively um, and enjoy it a lot. I currently am working on a major change project of merging um, two uh, departments of a huge organization. Um, and, and that's very, very interesting in terms of it spans nationalities and it spans languages and it spans operating models. And so that is a, a very interesting piece of work I'm currently engaged on. Thank you, Naomi. Milan, will you, are you okay to continue? Yes. Uh, so hi, uh, Milan Günther. I'm, um, I, I'm, I have a background in design. Uh, so I went to design school, uh, making, you know, functional working uh, things and uh, experiences and stuff like that. And uh, I kind of got into designing enterprises and organizations and operating models and these kind of things by realizing that um, uh, oftentimes uh, all those products and experiences and what, what an enterprise wants to deliver or what the goal of a business is um, will not actually um, be delivered if we don't look at those aspects uh, that should be designed to deliver it, which includes uh, engaging people, making people work together, designing collaboration, designing how um, we use and put together resources, how we operate our processes, how we relate to partners along the value chain and so on. Um, so uh, out of that, uh, you could say frustration of, of many projects not going where we wanted them to go, because someone showed up who was against something or something wasn't feasible, um, we we started this movement around the idea of enterprise design. And I wrote a book about it and uh, uh, started, as you mentioned, the, the Intersection Conference in 2014. Um, and uh, now I'm also teaching it at Sciences Po in Paris, uh, so a, a school that um, has been created you could say as an alternative, it's called the Ecole of, uh, the, sorry, it's half French, <laughs> the School of Management and Innovation, um, which has been created a little bit as an alternative to business schools to look at things more holistically, more like uh, what is the role of, of uh, enterprises, organizations in society. Um, and uh, I'm very excited to be on this panel because, of course, um, the way we work together, why we work together, uh, and... Um, you know, realizing ambitious projects together is currently shifting very rapidly. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm glad to, to join such luminaries here on this panel to talk about that. Thanks, Milan. Matthew? Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. Um, my, so I, I'm an IT consultant, effectively. Um, my background is in software development, um, but I've increasingly become... Um, uh, increasingly involved in helping organizations become more effective at uh, doing stuff with software, IT. Uh, and that eventually ends up 
we end up having to look at the uh, the kind of design and the dynamics inside the organization to make that stuff work. So a similar, an equivalent pathway to Milan, I think, in terms of coming from a different background, but actually ending up in a very similar space. Um, so it's quite interesting uh, to see the different perspectives here today. So I'm the co-author of a book, Team Topologies, that was published in uh, September 2019. Um, and this is uh, kind of guidance and patterns for uh, organizations that are doing a lot of things with software uh, and how to think about arranging teams. It turns out that with software, um, there are some additional kind of constraints or things that we need to think about. Um, it, those things also apply in other engineering contexts too, um, aerospace and automotive and things, but they, they're particularly um, obvious in, in a software context. And so... So we, we put together some some basically our experience and, and some case studies and things. Uh, what's been interesting is actually that um, organizations have started to apply these patterns outside of a software context. So we might get a chance to talk about that in the in the session today. Perfect. And looking forward to it. Now we start with uh, what's on everyone's mind, right? This pandemic, COVID-19, and how this has affected organizations. I'm sure you have been contacted by by companies because you are consultants and experts to see how they can make the shift either to a new way of working, to remote working, working from home. What were the main questions that were addressed to you during this during this crisis? So the, the I think there's kind of uh, two kinds of organization that we that I've seen. One kind of organization is the organization that's, that has already that had already adopted a kind of remote first way of working, or at least had adopted a, a, an organizational culture that made remote work very straightforward because they had high trust. They had, um, they had uh, good communications uh, between individuals and between teams uh, and groups inside the organization. They were very transparent uh, in, in most of what they did. And so those organizations have, have thrived, and, and I've not heard from those organizations really, apart from uh, in terms of kind of case studies or in terms of being able to, to celebrate what they've been doing. It's the organizations that... Um, that did not prioritize transparency, trust, and good communications that have been really struggling. So those organizations have been kind of reaching out to say, well, you know, we've got to do something. Can you help with um, kind of accelerating our move towards something that's more effective? Um, we like the material in the Team Topologies book and, and the, the talks and things you've done online, Matthew. So how how can you help us to, to make this transition more more more? Rapid. So I think the the pandemic and and similar things recently have have really uh, made it very clear to pretty much every organisation, uh, at least in in a kind of um, knowledge work situation, that um, the old practices of being able to see someone sitting at a desk and therefore believe that they're working. Are just kind of. I mean, they've always been irrelevant, but they're clearly no longer no longer relevant at all now, and are not sustainable. So it's been very interesting to see that that kind of uh, become massively apparent for lots of organisations. And uh, Matthew, just to uh, were this mostly organisations that uh, were moving remote, or just normal organisations wanted to be more eff more effective? So if effectiveness was the goal, not necessarily moving remote. Well, I mean, a lot of these organizations, effectiveness wasn't necessarily the goal at all. A lot of these organizations had a, a goal around efficiency or around you know, sales metrics or whatever. They've realized that those things are not achievable unless there is high trust and decent levels of transparency and communication within, within the organization. But those were things that they had not yet invested yeah. in. And so then, so their, their goals were not even achievable anyway. So they've, they've really had to rethink about about their kind of priorities and how they how they conceive of how the organization sort of works. Internally. Thank you. Milan, how what was your experience? Well, um, I think initially uh, everyone was, I think two things happened. Uh, for, like people first were really concentrating on, I would say, the, the practical and tactical side of the changes. Uh, oh my God, everyone is at home now. Um, what can we do? Uh, how can we work together? How can we? Um, you know, not um, uh, not get a big belly <laughs> sitting in front of Zoom all day uh, and and deal with security and things like that. And uh, for us, a lot of the projects that were 
focused on innovation and delivering new things got actually postponed or cancelled, especially in those industries that were heavily impacted. And the first uh, needs that arose were kind of how can we keep going um, and how can we replace what we had together in the office with something that um, you know works just as well. Uh, and then uh, slowly, I think the more fundamental questions were coming to the surface, which is, oh, people don't want to go to work anymore, actually. Uh, people enjoy being at home and have uh, the, the new liberties. Uh, people ask themselves, are we actually, like, is, is this the right thing to do in my life? Like, because the routine of going somewhere every day was completely broken. Uh, companies uh, also were challenged a lot. Um, some had to shift rapidly and radically what they're actually doing. So it's not just about how we work together, but what is it actually that we are doing? Like maybe the, the product or service that we deliver is not actually working anymore. No one wants it anymore. Um, and so over time, we saw a, a shift from this initial tactical scope to more fundamental questions. Um, and and right now, uh, we see this, this um, uh, trend that companies are struggling to... Um, kind of uh, get people excited about work again. <laughs> it's a very interesting questions that uh, Milan and uh, Matthew have brought up in terms of um, not just the technologies and the homeworking, but in from a sort of design perspective, when I think about the whole organization, a lot of organizations that I'm working with don't have solely home workers. They have people in the front line who are doing stuff face-to-face -face, like retailers or um, other, other people driving instructors and what have you. And, and that what, what I'm seeing is how do we make a work working organization that recognizes the different values and the different lifestyles and the different needs and wants of people in, in a way that is a very different pattern from that we've had before. What we don't want to emerge is a home working tier and a frontline tier, particularly when the home working tier is generally better paid than the frontline tier who are doing the more useful work, essentially. Um, so the, that home question of how do we think about a workforce in a different way and what who brings value and where should they work is is coming up quite quite often in the discussions that I've had the second thing that is coming up and it is repeated in several surveys is how is the role of the leaders changing and and Matthew alluded to to trust and transparency and, and um, that sort of thing. And, and that is a very different role for leaders in many organizations who are thinking of command and control. And, and that, what I've really enjoyed about the homeworking elements that I've been involved in is seeing leaders emerge as humans, you know, uh, who, a CEO whose child of two jumps on his lap in the middle of a Zoom meeting, it can be quite unnerving when you're a CEO and that doesn't happen in a kind of face-to-face -face business meeting. But it has seemed to have made several of the um, leadership teams that I've been involved in feel much more um, human to their to their workers and their colleagues and their, the people they interact with. And it's, that, I think, has been really interesting. And I'm, I wonder if we'll be able to maintain that. Has it actually shifted people's behaviors in terms of the, how they think about leaders, how they respond to leaders, with it, whether it changes the more subtle symbols of power and control? And that's the sort of thing that I'm starting to wonder about. Yeah, it's interesting as well. And I was talking to Professor Obel and uh, there is a paper uh, of a Romanian researcher and apparently she did a study on the virtual rat race and it's still happening. It apparently just takes a different form at some point. So when they get used to this kind of interaction, there are still some signs of power that will show up, uh, but but virtually. So uh, it is it is an interesting uh, question where this uh, there, where this. And one other thing that you pointed, all of you, is that a lot of people seem to like 
hybrid and not necessarily fully work from home or fully work from uh, from the company. And that's another interesting way of how do we design organizations that are fit for that. Apparently, it's not uh, so easy. So I'm turning this back to uh, to you. And uh, Matthew, if you want to start, that would be that would be nice. So how should we think about organizational design for remote work, whether it's fully remote or hybrid? What are your thoughts on that? What's been really what's really interesting in this space is to is to get beyond fully office based hybrid fully remote in terms of where bodies are located we need to move beyond that I think and we need to look where intent and uh, common goals are located and that's a much for me that's a much more useful lens to think about what an organization is for and how it works. Um, so you can have, for example, you can have a, a team of say eight people. They can be in the same physical building. They can be around the same set of eight desks and they might never talk to each other. And I've seen this in, in, in consulting work. I've done, I'm sure lots of people have seen this. They don't even talk to each other. They might email each other. They might send something on messenger, um, or chat and they don't even speak. So is, and I mean, so purely being physically located doesn't necessarily mean that we're actually having a, a sense of a team or, 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 or a shared purpose. On the other hand, there are organizations that have been doing fully remote work for uh, nearly 10 years, and they have a very clearly defined sense of purpose for different parts of the organization, different groups, different teams, and they share very widely and very clearly what they're doing and how and why and when and what they've done. And in that case, we've got a very um, – so I, I call this – I talk. I, I say this is that there's a need for a co-location of purpose rather than a co-location of bodies. And if the purpose and mission and goals are there, co-located to people together in their in people's heads, it doesn't matter really where they where they sit physically. Um, and so that's this this pandemic thing has really forced pe people to to think about it in these terms. I think how can we create kind of uh, multiple common purposes within the organisation? So we've got multiple teams, for example, multiple departments, and so on. So how do we create this sense of purpose and? Bring people together around a shared shared understanding of what we're of what we're doing, and focus on that because that works wherever we're sitting. But if you're relying on people sitting together to get a sense of shared purpose, as soon as that as soon as that central kind of office thing goes away, then you, you've lost your shared purpose. How do we go about doing that? Because it seems to be more of a mindset shift rather than anything else. Well, there's some very practical things. Um, uh, uh, a lot of it is about kind of how you communicate, so that there are patterns for for better communication. Uh, very, very down to very specific things like what's the name of channels in your chat tool, whether it's Slack or Teams or whatever. Even being able to predict the name or, or understand what a particular channel is for can really help with the kind of uh, with, with new people coming on board or, or someone looking for where to have a conversation. Um, the making sure we've got the right kind of kind of documentation. Um, so we've got a, a discoverable page somewhere in the in in, in the company's um, kind of documentation uh, wikis and that kind of thing, and it should it should sort of describe. Um, it, it, we should have some expected standards around what that looks like, so that we know where to look to get certain kind of information. Um, in a software context, we go a bit further in, in Team Topology's book, and we talk about. Um, a, a team kind of exposing um, its kind of behavior and, and purpose in a very specific format to enable, which kind of mirrors the kind of format we use actually at a, at a software level, and, and that was deliberate. Um, and that then makes it easier to for other teams to understand how to interact with that other team and how to um, what expectations each team should have about that communication. So a lot of this, I think, is around is increasing clarity and expectations around how different parts of the organization should interact. That's a, a very key practical aspect is defining some of that stuff and, and making that work. Thanks so much. Uh, so if I could comment on that, I think that that idea of purpose is very interesting because um, I've just been reading a blog by 
Leandro Herrero. I don't know if you know him, but he writes very interesting blogs on viral change. And he often rails against things. And one of the things he was railing against this week was um, the idea that we all need a purpose, um, um, which I thought was very fascinating of uh, idea. But but the, there is something about what do we call that shared sense of sort of desired outcome. Um, and I noticed, particularly during the pandemic, which I find very interesting, is how communities, social communities have come together. So you get all these wonderful um, clips of people on their balconies in Italy all singing a song together, or, you know, they go off and ring a bell at eight o'clock on Thursdays outside their front door. And, uh, or, you know, at a sort of more serious level, you get groups of people um, cutting up sheets and sewing PPE equipment and scrubs for doctors and things. And, and those people who are doing that together have never done it before together. So there's something in what are they doing that is related to purpose potentially, or maybe it's related to social value, or maybe it's related to um, uh, feeling a sense that, that you of altruism that you have to contribute in a shared difficult experience and so on. And I th I th wonder if we're looking at those sorts of what's really going on in our communities to help us think through differently about the organizations that we work in because all of that um, goodwill and contribution and skill level is not, often not used in organizations and also the other thing that I find fascinating is that people are applying their skills very differently which again we don't pick up in organizations um, <clears throat> because we tend to typecast people in particular roles. And there's a very um, good writer, Margaret Heffernan, who's just written a book called Uncharted. And I listened to her talk, and she's an author and management speaker and all the rest of it. And in the COVID pandemic, she suddenly discovered that she was delivering food around her village in a van, which she'd never driven before, and her, had become the logistics expert for food deliveries for vulnerable people. And for her, that was a wonderful new role that wouldn't come up in, the, in her prior life kind of thing. And that, that, that role changing possibility is replicated a lot and I think that we could learn from that as we think about our organizations going forward. It's a very interesting point, uh, sorry, that yeah, you raised uh, with the purpose, because um, I, I feel that, like it's often the case that words or terms that are hyped uh, then get uh, or, or trigger some kind of a, a rejection from uh, parts of the and, and it's not without reason you know because I think purpose is a particularly loaded term because there are some people who think about that term just as um, uh, you know like, really like a reason to live like in, in French uh, every company wants to have at least or in France wants to have a raison d'etre so a reason for existing uh, is that that what we mean with purpose and if yes then what is that and um I don't know, I, um, sometimes I also make the, the exercise to just translate a term to German to see if that changes anything in my head. And the translation for purpose is Zweck, which really means very, uh, like, it's, it's um, the, the reason why you would do something. And um, if uh, an organization or company or an enterprise doesn't have that, then why would it exist? But the idea that this has to be something of value for society or for the planet or for even for the people um, delivering it is, is, you know, it's not a must, <laughs> I would say, like there. And maybe your purpose is to gain a living, you know, and, and that's, that's the purpose. It doesn't mean that the purpose doesn't exist. And it gets into these like uh, terms. Um, so I would, I would actually go so far and say every, every company has a purpose might not be a purpose that you judge worthwhile pursuing, but it, it has one, otherwise it wouldn't exist probably. And um, 
And uh, the same goes for terms like culture. Like at some point, everyone said, oh, we have to, like culture eats everything and everyone for breakfast and, and lunch. So we have to talk about that instead of, uh, you know, strategy or business or uh, all these terms, shareholder value, stakeholder value, whatever um, uh, term uh, people were throwing around. Um, and uh, um, I, you, you might be familiar uh, with the quote from, from the ready where they say all, uh, culture is uh, read only. Like they often use these computer metaphors for like a, it's a read only thing. You, you can only read, you cannot write culture. It's something that emerges and it has to do with purpose. It has to do why we are with, with why we are there. Um, and uh, I just, well, my theory is that the crisis just made these things much more visible just because uh, it's uh, easier to not think about these things when you are in a routine, you go to the office each day, you, you, you are basically paid for spending your time there sitting at a desk and then you go home and you switch purpose and you switch culture and, and that's fine. And suddenly it's all blended and uh, you ask yourself, oh, why am I here? Why am I doing this? What am I doing exactly? And um, I think that's really interesting for uh, designing better organizations and better enterprises where these kind of things actually suddenly have to be explicit uh, or people are like, mm, why? What do you think about values in this same context? Um, so one of the companies that I admire very much that works uh, all remote or remote first uh, puts values on the first place and not culture in the idea that if people adhere to the same values, then a, a lot of cultures can come together and work together in a very nice way because the values are aligned. Of course, there needs to be purpose as well, and there needs to be needs to be process. How do you feel about how do you feel about that? Is it culture first? Is it values first? Is it purpose first? <laughs> um, I I can have a go at that one because I wrote a blog on that very topic recently. Because again, a friend of mine was not not Leandro Herrera, a different friend was deeply dismissive of the idea that we need to share values. And um, I thought that was a very interesting challenge. And um, because he pointed out that if you just knew what you were trying to do collectively, much as Matthew has said, we need to know what we're doing collectively or know what, what we need to do or have that um, idea that we ha we're going to do something together for some reason, then we don't need shared values because we'll just get on and do it we may have some sort of underpinning sense of common human morality, but which is when I was challenged by someone, when I said, I don't know if we need values, and I said, we need things like common sense or um, respect for each other. And they said, well, that is a value. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> but the, there is something about values, which I think is a little strange, because I've been in training courses where organizations say that they have strong values and I've said to the people what are the values and they can't tell me so that that doesn't seem to square and then I worked for an organization that had as one of its values be bold in your decision making and I thought that was intriguing because what does that bring risk to the organization? Is one person's boldness another person's um, risk aversion? You know, we, when you're thinking about the, the actual language of the value phrase, whatever it is, it is very, very difficult to pin anything on it in, in a way that is that you can operationalize. So I'm not very keen on these lists of values that organizations have. Um, but I do think that they need to have a sort of underpinning principle that we will respect each other or um, try and trust each other as far as possible or, or whatever. Although that doesn't translate well in some cultures. Um, which have, and you have to be aware of the value, the sort of values concept in different national cultures, um, because they play out very differently. So the unanimous decision is purpose first. I, I think something that isn't necessarily a management speak word like purpose. Yes, I rather like the French or the German um, words. So. 
How do we help Naomi Miller and Matthew, companies, big companies, sizable companies that are thinking right now to moving part of their workforce remote or hybrid and doing all of this shift? Do they need to think about organizational redesign, team redesign, incentive redesign? How should they start? What should they do? Reading what um, remote first companies have, have said about this, um, the biggest shift is um, is that people are effectively measured on what they produce on their output or outcomes even better, not just the volume of work, but what is achieved, rather than the amount of time they spend in the office. Um, and that's the biggest shift. Now that doesn't need any reorganization that doesn't need any new organization design per se necessarily. Um, but it does require a very big shift in, in the way that we think about what is work. Why are we paying people? What are they here to do? So I think the, the, the starting point is, is very much about, well, how do we even work out what, the, what outcomes we want? And that goes back to something like purpose. What are we trying to achieve? What would good look like? What would a good outcome look like? It's not necessarily about, make, uh, about specifying everything up front. It's about uh, defining what a good outcome would look like and allowing that person to achieve that in whichever way they can. Or a team of people to achieve that in whichever way they can. So that's a very different way of thinking, anyway, for lots of organisations. Um, it, it's, it's, I guess, it's a redesign of the work, of the nature of work in the organisation, specifying what what we want to see out of the end, and then not worrying so much about the stuff in the middle. Um, so the organisations are no longer obsessed; should no longer be obsessed about how much time people spend at their desk. I mean, that we need to make sure people are not burning out. But if they only if they can achieve that outcome in two hours out of the day, then that's fine. Well, why why should they be spending another six hours at their desk doing something when they when they've achieved that outcome? It's a very different way of thinking, um, and that would be my starting point that I I, I that I have been talking to people about. Any other thoughts? Well, uh, yes, the. Um I think it does require some redesign, um, particularly in organizations which have performance management systems based on competence levels, which I think hugely mitigate against um, discretion in how you do your job. Um, and I also question somewhat the idea that you can specify what good looks like because good to one person isn't necessarily good to another person. Um, and it, if you want to specify what good looks like, you may miss opportunities, but I think that's context dependent. I, I don't know. Um, because sometimes some of the work I do good results in a kind of better sameness. And what they've asked for is something radically different. But because they've, you, you know, you have a phrase that is very common, like, what does success look like? Well, supposing you said, I haven't a clue, we'll just try out some things and see what emerges. That would, that would give, give a different outcome, which might be better, but it might not be. But, but to get to that, level of experimentation or iteration perhaps would be a bit better way of looking at it in design terms where you're constantly um, trying things out does require organization redesign so in terms you know if you would think about waterfall pro program management compared with agile program management that that's quite a shift in the way a lot of organizations work and you see the difficulties that they have as they try and they sort of tag on to the word or agile and then try and organize themselves around agile and nothing else in the organization can work with it because it's not designed in a way to support agile working. So I think that there is quite a lot of shift, but we probably don't know what the extent of the design implications are. And it would be helpful to us if we didn't try and predict what they are, that we sort of um, help them emerge and sort of nurture the differences as, as, as far as we can, given the the need for um, most organizations have for trying to control stuff. Be, what's been nice about the pandemic is that it's uncontrollable. We don't know how to deal with it. So we've had to learn as we go along. And now it's sort of apparently becoming more controllable in some aspects. 
there's a danger that we'll start to try and control it. Not, I mean, controlling the pandemic will probably be sensible, but you know, those same mechanisms that we allowed ourselves a emergent mindset could be helpful going going forward. So absolutely, I mean, this is a fundamental need in 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 organisations right now. So we've got the current pandemic, but this is not the only pandemic, right? There's going to be another pandemic in a couple of years' time, and one after that. This is just the way the world is now. Anyone who thinks that this is the only pandemic that's going to happen in the, in the, in the hundred year span is 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 deluding themselves. We've also got a massive amount of climate change, which is going to accelerate over the next next few years. There's going to be a huge amount of upheaval. Um, and organizations absolutely have to set themselves up to be adaptive and responsive to very different situations, different uh, legal and trading uh, situations, different uh, work situations, different technology situations. The nature of food will change, um, all sorts of things, particularly in, in the kind of how things get specified from a digital point of view are going to radically change over the next decade. And so absolutely, the the way which the organization should be thinking about how it does work needs to change. It needs, absolutely needs to be setting itself up in, in the right areas of the organization to do effectively continuous experimentation and adaptation to ideas and, and, and discovery and use, use multiple different approaches to, um, to doing work inside the same organization, depending on the, on the specific context. Um, in the traditional organization of the, of the 20th century, for many organizations, that was, that was a reasonable model. The nature, of the, the nature of the changes from the outside the organization were relatively small in many cases. Um, now we're in a situation where the pace of changes is actually accelerating. Um, and so organizations that want to survive are going to have to look at multiple techniques for adapting on a continuous basis. And that includes adapting how we do work and how we even think about work. For sure. And one other thing, and maybe Milan, this is a good question for you, is we didn't know how to stay innovative in by working remote, right? Because the tools weren't necessarily there. Zoom is not necessarily a, a tool that you can use or, or the phone or email uh, to be to be innovative. So how can we think about organizations and how, how can we drive innovation and transformation, but by design, so really with intention, into this hybrid or remote organizations. Yeah, I I, I would like to tie that back to to Matthew's uh, comment about about how we um, uh, define uh, you you know like success on a, on an individual level, and I think this is the paradigm. This paradigm shift really is connected to everything else because um, so it used to be like um, management pretending that management as a, as a discipline, basically as, a, as an area, uh, as you said, in, in the 20th century model, uh, pre to pretend that everyone is the same. Like it doesn't matter what you do and who you are, you have to do marketing and you have to manage the human resources and you have to do operations and you have to do this and you have to do that. And then they, like people tried to add just innovation to the list. No, you have to do marketing, no, 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 but also innovation. Um, and what we see now uh, with uh, the context radically changing uh, is that this actually doesn't work. Um, and um, there's an awful lot of uh, systems theory suggesting actually that a, a complex system like an enterprise or an organization that consists of humans that have behaviors and the behaviors are to a certain degree independent, so we can plan them, we cannot put you there and say, now you work uh, eight hours on this and we pay you that and, and then everything works like a machine, um, requires actually uh, setting up experimentation, uh, setting up, uh, it, like it requires interacting and probing the system, the system like the organization on the inside, but also the market that, or the markets that it, it addresses, like the job market, the market with the customers and so on. And... Uh, not only allowing people to experiment, but really working in this mode. And it is connected to this um, shift in, I will not reward people for uh, time in a location, but for uh, achieving something. And this something has to be uh, found out in, in experimentation. Um, and there's uh, also research that suge suggests that um, the, uh, the only way 
to do so is to have means and mechanisms and places uh, where people can exchange ideas and can can be exposed to other people's thinking. Um, and a lot of the uh, you know the, the famous silos uh, that people always want to bust, but then still keep in control, um, are actually preventing that because. Why would I share my thinking with someone in another silo who's, who has, a, like you could say, another person's turf uh, that I don't want to get into because then I get into politics and uh, it might not be good for me if I did so. So how to change the uh, mechanisms um, down to things like uh, Matthew mentioned also, like um, uh, how do we call spaces? Do we call them after departments and functions? Do we call them after topics? Do we... Like, how do we, uh, and how do we get the ball rolling uh, so that people can actually exchange and plan experiments and then also have the space to do them and to learn from them? And uh, the, the, the um, important thing, I think, is that people have to be prepared that any kind of scope restriction that you might put on this uh, will probably be challenged by whatever you find in the experimentation. So if you think, oh, this is just org design and we are not looking at the business model and we're not looking at the operations and we're not looking at the customer relationships or experiences and we're not looking at the products, that will probably not hold very long or uh, or you will not have, like if you insist on that, you will might not have the impact that you want or any impact actually. It's very interesting. Basically, we are asking organizations to do what they always didn't like to do set goals, smart goals, <laughs> keep track of them, measure, experiment, improve step by step. And they never seem to like this very much. You've all spoken about success at team level, organizational level. How does an organization of the future, which is successful, ideally look like? I think that's a very difficult question to answer um, because what I was just reading earlier today four possible scenarios on the pandemic so you know you have a, another wave or you recover slowly or whatever and then I was listening to someone else talking today about we're currently in four simultaneous crises so there's the pandemic crisis there's the humanitarian crisis of livelihoods which has been caused by that there's an economic crisis and there's a political crisis look how many countries have tried to have um, postponed their elections for example and you've got those four crises occurring at the same time now, then when you start to think, what does success look like for an organization? It might be that they recover, whatever that might mean. It might be we've got no idea what success looks like. We just have to carry on muddling through and hoping for the best. Or it might be something completely different. Or success might be we've we've done this for 30 years as an organization. It's time to stop. And uh, a few months ago, Milan and I had a very interesting discussion about a term that um, Milan then coined of enterprise hospices. At what point do we stop thinking about organizations as having to have a successful future? Does an organization have a lifespan exactly like a human being? And you, and we should design for that. You know, we will design cars or we will design services for a particular lifespan not for ever or for sustainability in the terms of longevity. And I think, oh, look, Matthew's getting a book. <laughs> I think that that's a very interesting concept of what, what on earth do we mean by success? Does success in terms of the four concurrent crises look very different depending which combination of them plays out? It's a very interesting point. So I, I just grabbed a book off my bookshelf, and it's called uh, Scale, and it's by Jeffrey West, uh, who's a physicist. Uh, but he dived into the the, the uh, kind of lifetime and scaling effects of lots of different things, including organizations. And uh, there's a part in there where he's talking about lifetimes of, of companies and, and why companies that get too big might end up naturally having to die off and things. There's some really interesting dynamics that to 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 look into. We're starting to see. Um, some ideas about that emerge. I think one of the key things that a successful organization will look like 
is an organization that has uh, deep situational awareness. So deep awareness of its situation in the kind of external environment of, of politics and, 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 you know, the world uh, kind of physical environment and, and the trading environments and things, but also situa situational awareness of its internal environment as well. And is therefore able to apply the right kind of methods to the right kind of activities. So not everything is discovery. Lots of things are increasingly many things that need to be very nimble and agile, but there are certain things that actually need to be, um, need to have a high degree of kind of control and so on um, and be very repetitive. So organizations that try to apply this exactly the same methodology in all different situations are probably not going to be successful. They need to understand where to apply different kind of working practices in, in different situations and when to adapt. Um, so we, I think we're starting to see, um, I mean, it, it was really inspiring for, for me to read uh, Naomi's book a couple of years ago. And she's talking about this environmental scanning, looking at the situation that we're, that we're in and understanding what that means and thinking, ah, well, in that case, we need to work in this particular way over here on this thing, but work in a different way over here on this other thing because they're different contexts and they need a different kind of approach. So that, for me, that's the kind of successful org uh, organization is one that's able to differentiate, uh, able to scan its environment to be situationally aware and apply the appropriate kinds of, uh, uh, kind of activities and ways of working in different situations. Thank you, Milan. I would say, um, yeah, it's it's tough to say. Um, like, th there's there's no best practice huh? because of the very nature of the problem. Um, so, uh, I think the only thing that we can do is, uh, or that organizations can do, really, is to, um, yeah, as as Matthew said, like have have awareness uh, and. Um, so we, we use the term enterprise uh, to describe why an organization is doing what it's doing. And then the product would be what it's doing. And then the organization design is how it's doing that. And uh, in many cases, uh, yeah, as I, as I said before, those uh, questions are so intertwined that you cannot separate them. You cannot separate them out. Um, so in any kind of experimentation, you basically need a language uh, to address uh, the and, and have a traceability between, um, okay, here we have a challenge uh, and this challenge uh, affects primarily these three aspects of our enterprise and uh, it might also affect uh, like as a, as a maybe as an externality or as, a, as something we need to look out for those five aspects, like maybe our brand or maybe our reputation or, um, uh, or even stuff like our culture. Uh, and um, how do we design for that? Um, and how do we design experiments that then, um, you know, have have suf like have sufficient um, boundaries to actually take any decision, so that you are not in paralysis of of analysis, uh, trying to get uh, data on something that you can't, but. Uh, yeah, like this value of this company, like be bold, <laughs> take a step forward, but be ready to then look at it with 360 degrees and uh, also take the decision maybe to take a step back. And uh, I really think that for some enterprises, that will be too much. And, uh, you know, there are examples of enterprises completely reinventing themselves. Um, one notion that we often use in this uh, in enterprise design is the notion of capability. So what are we capable of doing, uh, which is a concept coming mainly from the enterprise architecture space, um, so that we get the, the question of why we are doing it and how we are doing it, uh, like the process or the teams or stuff like that, out of the way. And we just need to, we, we can just look at what do we need to do? What do we need to be good at? And maybe that is radically different than what we are good at today. Um, and sometimes this, like if, if we need to change all our capabilities, that would be like a person completely changing, uh, their, their person, like <laughs> their, everything they're good at. Um, and sometimes that's too much and sometimes it works. There are examples of companies completely reinventing themselves and things that we talked about before, like, um, how strong is our sense of why we're here, like our entrepreneurial 
sense uh, of, of what what we want to what outcomes we want to achieve, um, then it might be actually easier to shift that, have a new north star, you could say, uh, of of why we're here and what we want to do, and then look at what kind of capabilities do we have and we can repurpose to to go there and which ones do we maybe have to add? Can we look for partners for that? Can we um, uh, build and acquire new competencies, new skills ourselves, and so on? But uh, in order to have these discussions, you basically have to... um, uh, enable conversations and enable sharing. Otherwise, uh, people will just talk in their own language and not understand each other, and there will be zero progress. Is my experience. Cool. And then I feel that we have so many questions unanswered, and I hope all three of you will be okay to uh, join us and the Professor Parnish as we are continuing the series with something called the Future of Organizations, and we will talk, mainly talk about building organizations for resilience. So they can swim through all these uh, waters of uh, economical distress, political distress, uh, pandemic distress, and human distress, and then maybe put our minds together again to see how we design that uh, organization for the future, however that might, might, uh, might look like. In the meanwhile, if anyone wants to engage with you and find out more about how they can design organizations or teams to be better for the future, how can they reach you? Naomi, would you be okay to start? Yeah, sure. In my case, they can look at my blog um, site, my website, naomistanford.com, which has got my contact details on it. They can um, look at my Twitter account at Naomi Organization Design, Org Design rather, which um, you can contact me through or through LinkedIn. So I've got three main methods there. Thank you. And I'd be happy to take um, questions and thoughts from people. Perfect. Matt, Milan, Matthew. Hi. Uh, so um, you can contact me through uh, the website teamtopologies.com. Uh, that's anything relating to organization design, ways of working, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, uh, Matthew P. Skelton, and on LinkedIn. You'll find me there too. So, yeah, please send any questions my way. I'd love to, love to have a chat and discussion. Yeah, same for me. Uh, so I'm also on LinkedIn and uh, you can read more about uh, what I'm doing and what I have been talking about, like navigating these spaces of, of changing enterprises. It's uh, enterprisedesign.io. And um, uh, we are also organizing uh, our intersection conference because of the very reasons we talked about what we talked about today, uh, mostly remote and a little bit locally in November. So um, uh, if you're in Paris, you, we might even, uh, if, if you can join, um, you can meet in person, maybe. Who, we'll know. It's, it's tough to say, but could be. <laughs> Hoping for it, right? Thank you so much. And I really wish we had more time today. I know you have to, you have to go, but uh, we will meet again and talk more about uh, organizations. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank That's you been very much. fun. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>